And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You're just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It is Wednesday, hump day. That means smoke, mirrors, and the truth with Bruce Anderson. Peter Mansbridge here in Stratford, Ontario. Bruce is in Ottawa. And hello to you. Well, hi, Peter. I've been really looking forward to Wednesday Hump Day Smoke Mirrors and the Truth Day and um, can't wait to hear what we're going to talk about. Well, I think most people can probably guess what we'll start talking about. We've got some, we got a, three good topics here today. So let's get right at it. The first one is the move made yesterday by uh, Premier Francois Legault of uh, Quebec uh, that he is going to, his province is going to charge those with a special tax, those who are unvaccinated and refuse to get vaccinated and don't have a medical exemption. Now, Legault has been, I think it's safe to say, throughout the pandemic has been the most popular um, first minister in the land, at least has received the support of most of his province most of the time, where other premiers uh, and the Prime Minister at times have uh, suffered uh, hits from uh, the public in terms of support. Not so Lego. He's done pretty well, even though his province has been hit particularly hard uh, right from the beginning on the uh, pandemic situation. So how this one's going to play out and how real it is, I mean, it sounds good. There's no question about it. All the legal experts are trying to determine whether or not it's legal to be able to do this how much is this tax going to be how is the province going to collect it and how are they going to collect it for people who don't have the money if they don't have the money Uh, lots of questions associated with it and therefore the big question of will it ever really happen or is this all about optics is this a little smoke mirrors and the truth um, that's uh, happening right in in front of our eyes here. Um, so let's talk about this, and uh, why don't we start with your sense of, because I think there was a degree of surprise yesterday when this dropped. Um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, what was your, what's your sense of it? I don't know how I feel about the idea itself. I think that I hear people say it's a slippery slope once you start, charging people differently for the health care that has been universally accessible. Um, where does that stop? Um, could it go badly? Could other people kind of use that, um, that kind of opening of the door to achieve other changes in healthcare down the road that we wouldn't necessarily be in favor of? So uh, I don't know that I love the idea at all. Um, but I do appreciate and support the point that he's trying to make and the outcome that he's trying to achieve. And I rather think that maybe that is what he was trying to do yesterday is, uh, is add another layer of we're serious about this. You need to get uh, a shot if you're not vaccinated. And also I think he was introducing for people in a very blunt way what we know is part of the math of this epidemic, which is that if all of the resources in our hospitals or a significant proportion of the resources in our healthcare system are going to be overconsumed by people who've chosen not to do something that we know can help manage health risks in society, uh, the economics of our system do get unraveled. This isn't 
you know, the only time maybe that we'll face this. And uh, you and I know, Peter, that when we were born, well, you were born in another country, so I'm not sure what applied to you there. But in another century. Canadian, <laughs> another century. Well, yeah, me too. But uh, another millennium. Yeah. The, the, uh, the point I was making is that um, vaccinations for infants and children has been kind of accepted as, a, as an important health measure. Um, and it does create a healthier society when children are vaccinated. It's not just for those children, it's for everybody else's children too. Uh, those children who get the shots, it's for everybody's children. And if you, if we think about the way the world is working today and the, the way the online discourse about anti-vaccination happens, um, it isn't based on science. It's only based on how people feel and their instinct to resist the voice of authority. Now, if we don't solve that problem or fight at least to minimize it, and this is, I think, the point that Legault was you know, touching on, essentially, or at least that's, that's how I interpret the point of the policy, then who's to say we won't have a much bigger problem in our healthcare system going forward? So I, I think it's it's the right conversation to have, even if I don't know if this policy is going to survive or is the right policy. And, and what they're, do you think? well, they're expecting quite the conversation. Um, they were uh, his his um, you know communications people were putting the word out last night that they're they're looking forward to a healthy debate and discussion about this, and they're expecting a lot of different views to 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 play out. Um, why obviously. What the the goal here is is to get people vaccinated, and he yeah. has shown in the last couple of weeks uh, a number of initiatives that have in fact done exactly that. When he um, when he uh, imposed on the liquor stores uh, in Quebec that they had to um, see proof of of uh, double vaccination and boosters too, I think. Um, and also with the, uh, you know, if you wanted to buy dope at one of the provincial cannabis stores, you had to have that same kind of um, proof of, uh, of vaccination before you could I buy it. St- and it worked. Say, I, think we, I think we stopped calling it dope in the, when the millennium turned. Oh, really? <laughs> Just kidding. It's been so long. Um, the uh, Carry on, sorry. Yeah. The uh, um, but it worked. You know, uh, people and a lot of people yeah. rushed out and got their vaccination. And I'm assuming he's hoping that the same thing will happen here uh, as a result of basically threatening them with a uh, with, with a new tax. Um, so. I'm uh, like you. I'm not sure how to feel about this. I, you know, I, I worry that it infringes upon the kind of universal nature of uh, of our healthcare system uh, and what we're extremely proud of over the last fifty or sixty years. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are penalties. I know people draw distinctions here and say that it's it's not the same. But there are penalties if you smoke. There are penalties if you you know if you drink. There are penalties if you don't wear your seatbelt. Um, there are lots of penalties out there and we, yeah. you know, we brought this up. I remember bringing this up in, in, in the interview I did with, uh, Anita Anon last, last year when she was responsible for vaccines, um, this issue about whether or not, uh, the unvaccinated and those who refuse to get vaccinations, um, should be penalized in some fashion. 
And uh, she said, and the government said, and other governments have said, provincial governments have said, yes, they were, they are going to be penalized, and their their penalty is going to be they can't go to certain things, they can't do certain things, um, you know, they can't go to big sporting events or concerts or uh, dining rooms or what have you when dining rooms were uh, available um, unless they had their vaccinations. So there are penalties out there, but this is the first one that that seems to be uh, you know hitting the hitting the pocketbook what what about the issue of whether it'll ever really happen or whether it's all you know that it's a little smoke and mirrors right now you know to be honest i don't think it will happen i i could be proven wrong there but i i think that you know i, I it's hard for me to imagine what was in premier Legault's head and i'm looking forward to hearing chantal on friday if we have a chance to talk about this as well oh, i'm sure we will very <laughs> she has a, an exceptional understanding and of course you and i both feel a certain trepidation talking about quebec politics when she's not here knowing she'll bring the hammer down on us in, in yeah, exactly you know, so just a number of we, hours we get two <laughs> two days of freebie time but here Before we go that anyway. happens. <laughs> here we go anyway. So, look, I think that if I were in Legault's uh, shoes or in his office advising him, one, one of the things that I kind of like about introducing this subject is that it, it changes the conversation a little bit from measures that are being decried for being kind of fascist or authoritarian or um you know, obnoxious by government. I don't view those measures uh, around uh, weed. That's what I think we call it now, <laughs> or uh, booze as being uh, fascistic or authoritarian or obnoxious. I think they're, I think they're productive nudges of society, but um, they can be part of a conversation that some people say. You know, government is just really trying to arm twist people to do what the government thinks they should do. And that's a uh, that's a somewhat helpful conversation, but mostly unhelpful from the standpoint of how to get to the maximum number of vaccinated people. By introducing this idea of a cost, I think that Legault is raising a perspective that I think a fair number of small C conservative voters in his province and maybe in other parts of the country will find interesting and maybe resonant. You and I were exchanging some data about ICU um, beds in Ontario, which showed, and I, you know, I may have the numbers a little bit wrong. I think it showed that 138 of these ICU beds of, of some 500 sample uh, were occupied by unvaccinated people. And when we bear in mind that the unvaccinated population is more like um, 8%, uh, that's a lot of ICU beds that are occupied by people who wouldn't be there if they had been vaccinated. That's simple math. And when we, I saw another statistic that said dealing with a patient in ICU for COVID is about a $55,000 item. Now, I don't think everything in our healthcare system should come down to a, how much are you costing that costing the healthcare system versus how much am I? And uh, is my health worth more than yours because I take better care of it? That sort of thing. I, I don't want to go down that road. But I also think it's fair to look at a situation like this and say, well, there have to be some sort of uh, parameters around how our health system works that require in an urgent situation people to do the thing that keeps our health system from becoming bankrupted. Um. 
you know, Quebec has always um, sort of charted its own way and not being particularly concerned whether others follow it or, or, or if in fact it's even following them in certain, uh, you know, initiatives. Um, and so I don't imagine that, that Legault and his team are spending a lot of time wondering whether or not other provinces are going to follow this initiative. Uh, but it is a legitimate question for us to ask. Do you think any other provinces will, in fact, follow the Quebec initiative? I think a number of them will be watching it carefully. I think that because part of the backdrop is the question of um, health transfers, you know, we're headed towards another big contentious conversation about federal transfers of dollars to the provinces for health care. And, you know, I think that in that context, it's legitimate for observers to say, well, what is the experience of the provinces through COVID? What are the things that they're willing to do or not willing to do that can mitigate some of the costs that happen when a pandemic occurs? And I don't know that I think that anyone will follow suit because I think that the conservative administrations in uh, Ontario and Alberta, for example, and Saskatchewan, you know, would probably be a little too preoccupied with offending anti-vaxxer voters. Um, and so I think if we think about their political circumstances and how they might be a little bit different from Legault, given the makeup of the, uh, of the voting blocks in Quebec, I don't think they're going to follow suit, but I do think it's a, it's tricky for conservative politicians to make the case that uh, there shouldn't be any extra cost borne by those who choose to, add enormous costs to the healthcare system, because that's really what it comes down to as far as I'm concerned. Okay. We're going to move to another um, issue of leadership because Legault was showing his style of leadership yesterday in, in, in that initiative, and it will be judged as, uh, as all, uh, all initiatives are over some uh, time. Um, another question around leadership is Boris Johnson. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what happened today with Bojo. All right, then. We're across the pond. Um, if, you, um, <laughs> if you know your history, you know that in May of 1940, when Neville Chamberlain resigned the prime ministership of um, Britain, and it was taken over by Winston Churchill. It came after a particularly crushing defeat that the British had had in Norway. And it was leading up to the days of where they would, uh, uh, the, the alliance would collapse through the Netherlands and Belgium and France. And it was just a very bad time. Um, and his leadership was called into the question to the point where they were screaming at him in the House of Commons to go, just go, it was, uh, I think, the, the term that was used. Well, that term was used today, actually, again, but this time on Boris Johnson, the current British Prime Minister. And the issue, well, it's over, it's over pandemic management, and in particular, one issue that surfaced in May of 2020. So we're a couple of months into the pandemic, and the country was in lockdown, and there were no gatherings supposed to be happening. Well, in fact, he had one at 10 Downing Street in the gardens and there were lots of his staff there and 
it's now been determined that he was there and that um, that he should resign as a result of that. And it was a particularly raucous um, question time in the uh, in Westminster in the British Parliament today. And it's not just the opposition. Uh, there's a significant number of conservatives who feel Boris Johnson, for any number of reasons, reasons and this one being the latest, should step down. Uh, so what was interesting was he decided to confront this head-on today by, for the first time, really admitting what had happened and apologizing in a very carefully worded statement. And that's what I want to I want to talk about, but first, you should listen to it. So here's Boris Johnson earlier today in London explaining the situation. Mr. Speaker, I want to apologize. I know that millions of people across this country have made extraordinary sacrifices over the last 18 months. I know the anguish that they have been through, unable to mourn their relatives unable to live their lives as they want or to do the things they love. And I know the rage they feel with me and with the government I lead when they think that in Downing Street itself the rules are not being properly followed by the people who make the rules. And though I cannot anticipate the conclusions of the current inquiry, I have learned enough to know that there were things we simply did not get right. And I must take responsibility. Number 10 is a big department with the garden as an extension of the office, which has been in constant use because of the role of fresh air in stopping the virus. And when I went into that garden just after six on the 20th of May 2020, to thank groups of staff before going back into my office 25 minutes later, to continue working. I believed implicitly that this was a work event. But Mr Speaker, with hindsight, I should have sent everyone back inside. I should have found some other way to thank them. And I should have recognised that even if it could be said technically to fall within the guidance, there would be millions and millions of people who simply would not see it that way, people who suffered terribly, people who were forbidden from meeting loved ones at all, inside or outside. And to them and to this House, I offer my heartfelt apologies. And all I ask is that Sue Gray be allowed to complete her inquiry into that day and several others so that the full facts can be established. And I would, of course, come back to this House and make a statement. There you have it. Boris Johnson in Westminster today. And there is there's a guy fighting for his job. And there's no question about it. You you may look at this off the table. If you've just kind of heard about this, as was really, is this a reason to have to resign? Uh, there are a lot of people who think it is. Um, this, coupled with a number of other missteps that Boris Johnson has made in the uh, during the the uh, pandemic and they're not all on the opposition benches there are a considerable number who are on the conservative side of the um, British House of Commons as well so this statement became you know 
pretty important. He's spent, and his staff, I assume, have spent days, you know, framing that to um, to to try to satisfy the critics. Now, the question is, did it satisfy them? It didn't sound like it did in the House of Commons, and it hasn't in the in, in many of the remarks since, but. The framing of a statement like that, the way it's worded and the way it's presented um, are critical things in the in the life of any leader. Uh, now, Bruce, you've been involved with any number of different leaders at the federal and provincial and I guess to some degree municipal level as well. And you've helped in framing certain statements. When you look at that one, uh, and especially under the umbrella of the title of this show, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Uh, how did you see it? Bad smoke, <laughs> crappy mirrors, not very much truth. It uh, Honestly, Peter, I think there's three things going on here. First of all is, for context for our listeners, this party happened during a period of time when a lot of people were experiencing real hardship not being able to be with family when family members were dying and the government of Boris Johnson was saying, you can't do these things. Uh, so there is this um, huge sense of hypocrisy uh, that surrounds him attending a party when he was telling other people uh, that they should behave completely differently and, and accept some really serious personal uh, downsides. The second thing is he said over and over and over again that there was no party or he didn't attend a party. And now he's saying there was a party and I did go. And so there is a question of how many different types of lie did he tell um, from the time that this story about this party surfaced. And then to get to your specific question, yes, I have seen and been you know part of conversations with politicians from time to time where something breaks, uh, something really bad happens. Debris is flying all over the floor in terms of what you have that you could possibly say about the situation that you find yourself in. And it's not pretty. Uh, you look around the floor, gather pieces of debris, try to put together the best possible story that you can out of what's available. And it's usually, it's never going to be a work of art and it's not always laudable activity. But this is one of the worst versions that I think I have ever seen of that. This notion of I went out and I, because I believe in the fresh air being a part of how you fight COVID and let's understand number 10 is a kind of a big office that but part of which is the gardens. I mean, when that team of people was sitting around writing that statement, I'm sure some of them said, this is going to stink. Nobody's going to really like this statement, uh, but it's the best that we can do in the circumstances. And to that point, um, he created this kind of off-ramp at the end of it, which is very deliberate, which is saying, but let's wait until uh, the results of this report come and then I'll make another statement. And that is a Hail Mary pass that is built to say, I'm going to get hammered for this statement that I just made. I know it. I know it's weak. I know it's not got very much to offer, but maybe the news cycle will turn before this report. Maybe people will forget it. Some of the anger will dissipate and I'll get through it. So that's the Hail Mary pass, which is almost a tell that says, I know this statement is garbage and doesn't, isn't going to satisfy the critics. 
What did you think? If you were covering it right now, how would you cover it? Well, you know, this guy has managed to dodge so many, you know, political bullets over the uh, uh, term of his prime ministership, over the term of his career. I mean, this is a guy who's been, you know, was fired a couple of times as a journalist for making stuff up. Um, You know, he, um, but he's a very engaging personality. You know, like I've, you know, I've stood across from him as opposed to sat across from him to interview him. Um, And and he's a great interview. (laughs) You know, he's, he's always engaging. Um, but how many strikes can you take? I mean, he's well past the three strike zone. I don't know what it is in cricket, but he, you know, he's, he keeps getting his, uh, leg before the wicket to block mm. the ball coming in to knock those little things off. And an LBW is supposed to be a, a reason to, to kick you out, but, but he's still in there. Now, the, the ultimate irony in some ways for me when I look at that party, when you put your mind back to May of 2020, that was only a couple of weeks after he damn near died in hospital of COVID. He got COVID. He was in the ICU. He was on a ventilator. Oxygen, getting oxygen. That's exactly. Right. Yeah. We, were, we were basically doing the obits for Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. So a couple of weeks later, um, there he is. You know, organizing a you know a, a party in the fresh air in the backyard. It's kind of like, it is kind of like Trump, um, who uh, who himself was organizing all kinds of uh, various things uh, at the White House, both during and after he knew he was positive uh, on COVID. But will he survive? I mean. He, you know, you figure the odds are in his favor that he'll survive because he keeps surviving. Um, but this one, you know, I don't know whether you watch the... Uh, I love watching Question Time uh, with the Prime Minister in Britain. It's once a week. It's only questions of the Prime Minister, and they come from all sides. And, you know, there's the, the, the normal kind of toadies on the conservative side uh, who ask the uh, the questions that are floated uh, up and pass through the uh, the prime minister's office first of all but there are also conservatives who go after him yeah and it you know it's it's great television and it's great theater um and they <laughs> they all speak so well that you know that whole oh, british no, thing great. it's just like yeah. wonderful to listen to them uh and and today was uh, was definitely no exception so i don't well, know where it's going to end up as we know, uh, you know, you and I both followed enough politics in the UK to know how this works. And, and some people may not be familiar with it. And uh, I recommend uh, a viewing of the House of Cards, the UK version, right. for a pretty good uh, narrative about what it takes to remove a sitting prime minister, which is, might surprise people that it's really just about whether his own caucus says, and they could decide this afternoon that they want to replace him and he'll be out this week. Um, so, the public opinion might not matter that much um, if there are other people who think, you know what, this is my moment to take this job and I can rally enough support in the caucus. So that'll be an interesting thing to watch. But just before we finish this subject, I want to read one small thing. And this is, uh, this is about Boris Johnson. And 
Boris sometimes seems affronted when criticized for what amounts to be a gross failure of responsibility. I think he honestly believes that it's churlish of us not to regard him as an exception, a one of who one who should be free of the network of obligation which binds everyone else. This was written by his master in Eton College in 1982. <laughs> so you could certainly make the case that this guy has been uh, operating from the position of the rules don't apply to me for all of his adult life anyway. I don't know what he was like before 1982, but that's 40 odd years ago. So um, there's been a pattern there for sure. There's been a pattern and he hasn't suffered from it. You know, he, he did, you know, in, in, in spite of his kind of tainted career as a journalist, uh, he had great, uh, you know, he had great positions and postings as a journalist. And then he ran for municipal politics. He was mayor of, uh, of London and a very popular mayor of London uh, through the uh, uh, London Olympics. Um, and then he decided he was going to run uh, for parliament. He ended up in the, uh, you know, in, in the cabinet. Um, of. Uh, I don't know if his opponents ever ran an ad saying nice hair. Do you know that? Because <laughs> one of his trademarks is nice is hair. His hair. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, you know, okay, so. I think he's going to survive. Do you think he'll survive just sort of up and down, yes or no? No. But in the short term, you think he's gone? Like he could be gone the next week? I don't know when this report is going to come down, so I don't know if that's a longer runway, but I think he's not got a very long runway, and I think there are other candidates that are interested in it. So I'm going to take a chance, and I'll play the under, and you can play the over and next week or Friday. Right, we'll get to you. Get to you know, spike the ball in the end zone, or I will. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, if that report is is anything like normal parliamentary reports, it could be a long time before we see it. Um, I don't know. Well, we'll how see. complicated is that investigation? It was a party. It said, "Bring your own booze." <laughs> yeah, that Tim Downing. <laughs> right. If I was somebody in that caucus or outside of it who wanted the job. I would say let him have it for a few more months yet. Let's get over the hump, the final hump of the pandemic, and then I'll come in. Maybe you lose the the momentum, though. That's the thing, right? If you don't take the shot when the puck's on your stick and the net is wide open, do you get that chance again? That's the calculus, I think, that's probably happening behind the scenes. Okay. Um, we got time for one last um, quick topic. And that's uh, Novak Djokovic. Um, and the question of whether the rules only apply to the uh, the ordinary people, that the famous have their own set of rules. And that's kind of what you're seeing playing out in Australia and the attempt to not make that the, the headline, but that seems to be the way the headline is going. Um, and it's clear this guy lied about his situation Uh, he's i think finally admitted that today but as of this hour and that may change um he's he's going to be in the uh, australian open you know listen there's there's no question that he's one of the world's great tennis players if not the greatest tennis player in the world um but uh that's the famous part of the equation the fact that he hasn't been vaccinated, that he's had COVID, that he appeared in places 
with COVID knowingly appearing in places with close-up um, uh, proximity to uh, to other people uh, is is certainly part of the issue. Um, your take? It's a fascinating thing to watch from a number of standpoints. I think that first thing that occurs to me is that in team sports, there are problems. We've seen the problem with Aaron Rodgers with the Green Bay and um, uh, and uh, a couple of other players who've been kind of high profile resisting the idea that they should get vaccinated. But in team sports, you know, it's pretty easy for people to understand. These are all people who depend on each other. Um, it's not a single individual who's going to determine the outcome of any sport. They're all going to be in a locker room together. They're going to be practicing together. They're going to be in close proximity as they travel from place to place. And so the idea of a, a mutual responsibility is kind of easier to uh, enforce, I guess, but in as individual sport, whether it's tennis or golf, um, it's the, the you know the chemistry is different. Now I happen to think that there is no dominant player in golf right now. So that you, you know if it was Tiger Woods ten years ago, and Tiger Woods said I'm not getting vaccinated and I still want to come and play the Masters, that's sort of what this is like. Um, would the masters say, no, you can't come. Or would they say, let's see if we can't figure out a way to exempt you from that requirement because our audience will be so much bigger. And um, the number of times that you need to, or want to win the masters in your career is a kind of an essential storyline in the history of golf. And so in tennis, which is the only other sport that I think is analogous in terms of the, there is a clear sense of who is the best in the world or that these events, especially the majors, um, the Grand Slam events in tennis, um, they decide who is going to be considered to be the best player in the world and maybe the best player ever. I, uh, I don't follow tennis as closely as some people do, but my understanding of it is that Djokovic is the best player for sure right now. And probably if he wins the Australian Open this year, if he plays, will cross that um, that milestone and be considered the best player ever that he that he is tied uh, with uh, uh, Nadal and Federer uh, in terms of the number of Grand Slam wins and this is going to be that thing so for the event organizers it's not trivial to say he can't come uh, but at the same time uh, the politics of saying because he's the number one player in the world, we're going to try to find a way to allow him to come. That's super problematic too. I don't think he should be allowed to play. I think that what happens if he is allowed to play is that it establishes this kind of idea that if you're an important enough entertainer, because I think that's what sports figures are, that you get to call the shots. And I don't think that's a healthy precedent to set. What do you think? I think that, um, the, uh, the the best tennis player in the world with the best record is Serena Williams. She's had more <laughs> Grand Slam victories than... Good point. Than a, Fair but point. Definitely. Well, I've already been uh, checked on that by <laughs> listeners in the last week. So I, I, I agree I with your, your new position. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
I, you know, I, I agree with exactly what you're saying. This whole sense that um, the famous have their own set of rules, you know, you know, I, I've, I've seen it not to, <laughs> to equate myself with, with Djokovic or Tiger Woods or, although our, you know, our, our games are very similar in both those sports, but the um, what I would what I would say is that I can recall in the sort of heyday of my being known that you the things happen that shouldn't happen like you get a better seat in a restaurant or you get moved up in a line uh or you offered to be moved up and we we resisted that as you know most of the time anyway um and but there is something there's something that's just simply not right about this sort of the own set of rules for the famous and especially so when it's dealing with public health uh let me uh, close things out for today with the with the acknowledgement that we dealt with three really interesting subjects here and yet we don't really know what's going to happen on any of them any of them which is is the beauty of this you know you got francois legault and will he actually do what he says he's going to do you've got uh, boris johnson will he resign and you've got uh, Djokovic, will he actually play in the Australian Open? Will he be allowed to play? So all three of those things, we don't know the, the final answer to. We have our suspicions. We have our feelings about what might happen or should happen. But we don't know, um, which is the whole beauty of smoke mirrors and the truth it's great water cooler talk if ever any of us were around a water cooler again for sure and yeah. so the virtual version of it will carry on for sure and would you even feel That's safe right. at a water cooler like are you gonna outside, do the big the wipe down air. with the with the water cooler in between was, outside know, in the fresh air that's right <laughs> yeah move it out into the gardens yeah all right, listen, great to talk to you. And as you said, it's going to be fascinating to hear what Chantal has to say, especially on the uh, on the Legault story uh, on Friday on Good Talk. She'll, she'll set us straight. Out. She yeah. will set us straight. She, uh, she's pretty good at that. Um, okay, Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa. I'm Peter Mansbridge in Stratford, Ontario. This has been Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth on the Bridge. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again in 24 hours. 